Now, as we're going through Psalm 40 here this morning, and Psalm 70, I want you to look at this through the eyes of Jesus and the eyes of David. Now, David is one that wrote this. We see that from the introduction of Psalm 40 to the chief musician of Psalm of David. But as I just read there out of Hebrews chapter 10, there is a messianic aspect of this psalm as well that ties us into Christ. So as we're going through this psalm, I want us to study it from the perspective of David and also from the perspective of Jesus as well. The premise of this psalm is pretty straightforward. It follows a very nice outline. If you look in verses 1 through 5, it's an element of praise. Verses 6 through 8, he has a realization of what's going on. Verses 9 through 10 turn into a proclamation, and then prayers from 11 on. So praise, verses 1 through 5, a realization, verses 6 through 8, a proclamation, verses 9 through 10, and then prayer from 11 on. It's a very simple thing. Life is hard. Look at this. Verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me, and he heard my cry. He also brought me out of a horrible pit. That's the premise here. Life is hard. There are trials. There are tribulations that are real, and they are difficult. They will affect you spiritually. They will affect you emotionally. They will affect you physically. Some of you here this morning are in a pit. You're in a spiritual pit. You're in an emotional pit. You're in a physical pit. Some of you watching online are in that pit, and if you're not in that pit, you know somebody who is. How do we then use this to take them back to them? Why are they in that pit? Oh, for multiple reasons. Some of you were thrown in the pit. You didn't ask for this. This is not what you wanted in life in any way whatsoever, but you were thrown into the pit by choices that other people made. Some of you stumbled into the pit. You played with fire, you got burned. You got too close to it, you were warned, stay away from the edge, but you stumbled into it. Some of you just flat out jumped right in it. You went right into the pit, and now you're at the bottom of it saying, what do I do? How am I supposed to handle this? There are pits in life that we need to understand that they are there, and we need to be careful of them. So with that mindset, what do we do with this? Well, let's learn from this right away. Verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. He's put a new song in my mouth, praise to our God. Many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust and does not respect the proud nor such as turn aside to lies. Many, O Lord, my God, are your wonderful works which you have done and your thoughts towards us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. That's the praise aspect of this psalm. This means a lot to me. I use this psalm a lot. As a pastor and people are going through difficult times, I remind them that they're in a pit. I remind them that the Lord is what pulls them out of it. I remind them to wait patiently for the Lord. That's a powerful song. Years ago, there was a guy going through a very, very difficult time by choices that he made and also by choices that were made against him. And so what happens was this, he got angry at God. And I don't know why, but when people get angry at God, they call me. So they're angry at God, so they call me. So he's angry at God. He calls me because he's angry at God. And he says that he's so angry at God that he's been taking a knife, pair of scissors, and cutting out portions of scriptures and cutting the Bible up. That's how angry he is at God. He wanted to call and tell me that. I said, have you cut up Psalm 40 yet? He turned and he said, no. I said, would you do me a favor? Could you read the first few verses of Psalm 40 out loud to me? I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the mire of Christ, set me a feet upon a rock, established my steps, new song. Read it again. Read it again. I don't know how many times we read through it. Read it again. And by the end of it, the heart started to change. Because he started realizing the pit he was in by his choice, the pit he was in by choices made against him, and that the Lord wanted to bring him out of the pit. 
I will repeat again. You are in a pit. By choices you've made, by jumping in it, by stumbling in it, by being thrown in it, or you know somebody who is. This is what we're going to do to get out of this pit. Please note, I don't have a problem with the first word, I. I like that word. But word two, I already start struggling. I waited. Oh, that's hard. I waited. And not only waited, I waited patiently. Oh, that's hard. You can wait and not be patient about waiting. You've seen people in line. They're waiting, and there's no patience in their waiting in any way whatsoever. This is, I waited patiently for the Lord. By this time in Psalms already, by Psalm 40, we've already had eight verses in the previous 39 Psalms that told us to wait on the Lord. This is an ongoing theme here in Psalms. Waiting on the Lord. Please note, waiting does not denote doing nothing. Waiting, you can still be serving while waiting, worshiping while waiting, working, praying, studying as you wait for the Lord. Think of the idea of a waiter. A waiter is not not doing anything. A waiter is constantly waiting. They're looking at your drink and seeing that it needs to be refilled. They're seeing that plate that needs to be taken away. They're seeing food that needs to be brought out. There's constant action for a waiter as he is waiting. And that can be the same for us. As you're waiting on the Lord, please understand you're still serving, working, worshiping, praying, studying. You're not sitting there doing nothing, but you're waiting for the Lord to move. Can you be willing to wait? I like what Charles Spurgeon says about waiting. He says... Unanswered petitions are not unheard. God keeps a file for our prayers. They're not blown away by the wind. They're treasured in the king's archives. Tried believer, your Lord has a tear bottle in which the costly drops of sacred grief are stored away in a book in which your holy groanings are numbered. By and by, your prayer shall be answered. Can you not be content to wait a little? Will not your Lord's time be better than your time? Boy, isn't that the truth? Sometimes the Lord does not move quick enough for me. I mean, I prayed. This should just come on. There's other times the Lord moves too quickly for me. He wants me to move. I'm not ready to move. I had a pastor friend tell me years ago, I've never forgot this, when the Lord wants to teach me how to swim, he throws me in the deep end. Sometimes that's what you've got to do, is just jump in. Quit testing the water and jump in. The older I get, I mean, I grew up with a pond. I love swimming. But the older I get, the harder it is for me to go swimming. Because that means I have to get cold and wet, and I don't like that. And my boys are at an age right now where they love swimming, so we've been going swimming a lot here this summer. And I do this, I know this sounds strange, but I get ready, I don't even touch the water, and I sit there on the dock or whatever, and I do pray. I say, Lord, make the water warm. That's what I do, and I just jump in. I don't want to wait. I hate waiting. The Lord says sometimes just jump in. But we need to learn to wait and wait patiently for the Lord. I love that again. Can you not be content to wait a little? Will not your Lord's time be better than your time? His timing is always perfect. And not only waiting, look at verse 1. He inclined to me. He turned to me. I mean, it's amazing that we can pray, that we're allowed to go to the creator of the universe and give him our cares and our concerns. But what's even more amazing that we're allowed to pray is that he actually answers our prayers. He actually responds. The creator of the universe stops and responds to us. Think that through for a second. Of the 8 billion people on this world, he stops and hears us. Responds to us personally. The power and privilege of prayer. 
It says in the book of Hebrews that through Christ I can boldly go to the throne of grace. He inclined to me and heard my cry. But now this brings up the idea of frustration again. If he's hearing my cry, why aren't my prayers being answered? I mean, Spurgeon just said, they're filed away, they're kept, they're not blown away. He hears them, every prayer is recorded. So why am I not being my prayers answered? John Corson makes a neat point about this. I'll, I'll steal his teaching point. He says, how often do you pray contradictory prayers? You have this moment of depth where you stop and say, Lord, I want more of you. Lord, I don't want to be this man anymore. I want to be a man of purity. I want to be a man of strength. I want to be a man of honor. I want to be a husband and a father. I want to be this person for you. I want to go represent you to the world. And you pray that. Lord, make me more like you. Then a couple of weeks later, something pops up where God has now brought things into your life to mold you into more like him, to sand off the rough edges. And so now these things come in and you say, Lord, stop it. Lord, take this away. This is too much. God is up in heaven saying, well, which prayer do you want me to answer? Do you want me to answer your first prayer? Are we say, mold me, shape me to be more like Jesus? Or do you want me to answer your second prayer of, no, don't do these things, Lord. It's too difficult. How often are my prayers unanswered because I'm actually lifting up contradictory prayers? Lord, I want to share you with everybody. So then he allows situation. oh, but Lord, I don't want to do that, so just make it stop. He inclines, he hears, and he answers in ways that we may not see ways that we may not expect, and to be quite honest, maybe in ways we do not want. Am I willing to wait patiently for him? Wait patiently for him. That he will, verse 2, bring me out of a horrible pit, miry clay. Some of your translations, the mud, the mire, the slimy pit. I think of in the book of Jeremiah, where they took Jeremiah and they cast him into the dungeon. It says in Jeremiah 38, they took Jeremiah and cast him in the dungeon of Malachi, the king's son, which was in the court of the prison. And they let Jeremiah down with ropes, and in the dungeon there was no water but mire. So Jeremiah sank in the mire. He hit the bottom, he starts sinking. Back to the pond. I'd like to go over to Bill and Shirley Jones's pond. And like to go swimming in their area. And we like to ask Bill, where's the deep part? So we go out there on the dock and we stand where the deep part's at. And the boys and I then jump down and we try to touch the bottom. But you've got to bring something up from the bottom to prove that you did it. And if you've ever gone swimming in a pond and you jump down and hit the bottom, you know when you hit the bottom, you hit it, then you start sinking. That's mire. This, it's not clay. It's not solid ground. It is just this layer of soft, I don't know what it is. I don't want to think about it. But I hit that and you start sinking in it. Now imagine a dungeon of this. What is down there where Jeremiah is thrown in this, or I should say let down with ropes, and he just hits it. He just starts to sink. That's, that's what life is like sometimes for us. We're in that pit of mire, mud, slime. Once again, either by me choosing to jump in it, by being thrown in it, by me stumbling in it, and I'm sinking. And it's horrible, verse 2. It's horrible. It's, it's awful. God brings me up out of it. And not only brings me out, look what he does. He gives me a new location, verse 2. He sets my feet upon a rock. So a new location. I go from the mire to the rock. And not only a new location, but he also, verse 3, puts a new song in my mouth. A new song. See, this is what's so vitally important. I have seen the Lord pull people out of pits. Give them a new location, but verse 3, they never get the new song. 
They have the outside change of being in a new location, but they don't have the inside change of a new heart right with the Lord. And so what happens is they're pulled out of the pit. They're in a new location on the solid rock. And what do they do? I'm going to go check out that pit one more time. They walk right back to the pit. They start looking in the pit. Next thing you know, they're falling in the pit. They're stumbling in the pit, or dare I say they're jumping in the pit. Peter uses a great analogy of just as the dog returns to the vomit. God pulls us out, puts us on a new rock, but then we go right back to the pit. Because we have to have the outside change of being on the rock, but we have to have the inside change of a new song in my mouth. Praise to God. Many will see it in fear and many will trust in the Lord. I need to be removed from the pit with a new location on the outside, but just as important, verse 3, I have to have a new heart and a new perspective on the inside. When you have been in a pit and you've been pulled out of the pit, it should change your life to stop and say, Lord, why would I ever want to do that again? Lord, let me learn from this. Let me learn from this and move forward in you. Because what happens is I'm blessed, verse 4. I'm blessed by trusting you. Look at the theme here. We have trust in verse 3. They will trust in the Lord. And then we have trust in verse 4. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Okay, so two options. You either trust him or, verse 4, you're proud. Trusting or proud. Which one is it going to be? Think of the dangers of pride. We don't think of pride as being an ugly thing. In some ways, we almost promote pride as a society. When a sports guy makes a wonderful play and he stands up and he dances and whatever and he mocks the opponent, we almost celebrate his pride. We celebrate the pride of the athlete that proclaims, I will win the victory. We celebrate that bravado. God says, yeah, that's not me. That's not me at all. Pride is a danger. Isaac Ambrose says this about pride. Pride is the sin of all, the sin of ages. It is the pride of life. It is the sin of the whole world. All sins do homage to pride as their captain and their king. The Bible says God resisteth the proud and God will know him afar off. God cannot stand the sight of pride. Well, that's deep. Pride is the captain and the king of all sins. I remember one time Rich and I were going to do a hospital visit. It was down in Cincinnati. So we had three hours there. We had three hours back. And that six hours round trip together, we finally figured out every sin has its root in pride. Now, granted, the Bible already told us this thousands of years ago, but it took us a while to figure it out. Pride, it's everything. Think about that. Almost everything, and I shouldn't say almost everything, everything comes back to an element of pride. We're prideful about how we look. We're prideful about how people respond to us. I don't get the respect at work. I want the raise. I want the promotion because I'm prideful that it's about me. People don't pay me enough attention because I'm prideful it's about me. I'm not happy in life because it's all about me. I'm prideful about me. Then you can even flip it around and you can become ultra humble. And you can be prideful about being humble. It's just all over the place. And the Lord is telling us here in verse 3, trust the Lord. Verse 4, trust the Lord. Verse 4, stay away from pride. As we've mentioned many times out here before, God can work with any type of sin, but not pride. He's worked with murderers, liars, thieves, adulterers, but he doesn't work with pride. Pride is that sin, that father, that captain of all sins, and God cannot stand the sight of it. And even though I battle this pride, look at verse 5. Many, O Lord, my God, are your wondrous works which you have done, and your thoughts towards us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. God thinks of us. Think about that for a second. God thinks about you. 
What you choose to think about is what is important to you. You choose what's important to you, and that's what you think about. Think about how many things you forget. Why did you forget it? be quite honest, it really wasn't important to you. I know I'm going to forget things. I've got to write it down. That's why I carry this around. I've got to write it down. I know it's important at that moment, so I can write it down. I tell Dawn all the time, write it down. Give me a list, because I won't remember it. What am I really saying? It's not important. How often do we go around remembering things about us? We all remember our own birthdays, but we don't remember anybody else's. Because it's important to us. God stops and thinks about us. Psalm 139 builds on this. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. What an amazing thought that the creator of the universe thinks about you and he thinks about you so much they can't be counted. But yet, not trying to convict, not trying to condemn, not trying to pick. How often do we have to think about God? We force ourselves to think about God. We stumble into church. We begrudgingly sometimes do devotions and prayer. We're eating our meal and then somebody says, did you pray first? Oh, yeah. But yet the Lord thinks about us so much that they can't even be numbered. That's grace. That's mercy. That's love. That's why verses 1 through 5 are the praise part of this psalm. What a blessing that is that God pulls me out of the pit, gives me a new location, new song, new heart, new thoughts. He's thinking about me. An absolutely wonderful blessing that is. Go from praise now to realization. But before we go to realization, anybody got any quick questions about anything here before we go on? Good? Okay. Realization. Once we realize this, verse 6, sacrifice and offering you do not desire. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you do not require. Then I said, behold, I come. And the scroll of the book it is written to me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your laws within my heart. Now David has this realization. Now, this is the messianic part of the psalm. Now, messianic psalms means they're psalms written about the Messiah, Jesus. Now, just be careful with messianic psalms. Obviously, there are certain ones that are definitely about Jesus. But don't try to take every part about it because this is also a psalm of David, verse 1. But this section right here, 6 through 8, is quoted in Hebrews 10 to show us this also deals with Jesus. So this is Jesus and David. Now, look at verse 6. And look at verse 8. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. The end of verse 8, your law was within my heart. You, you've got to think like an Old Testament Jew for just a little bit. You've got to think about that for a second. For David to say, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. That goes against Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I mean, that, that, that is almost heresy. For a Jew to say, Lord, you don't want offerings? Verse 8, your law is within my heart. This is why David is a man after God's own heart. Because David had this epiphany of where he got it. He stopped and said, Lord, you don't want more dead animals. You don't want more blood. What you want, Lord, is me. This is talked about in Amos. This is talked about in Isaiah. Where God comes back and says, I'm tired of your offerings. I'm tired of your animals. Because you're just killing them to kill them. They don't even mean anything to you anymore. There, there is no anything. You're just doing it to do it. By the time of Jesus, the way the temple was set up, according to certain sources, is that if you needed to do some type of offering, they would have these containers set up. 
they kind of called them trumpets, and you could go just take your money and just dump them in. So it's like, oh, man, I messed up. Got to do a sin offering. Okay, let me get out my shekels here or whatever it is. Go drop them in and go. There's no connection to the animal. There's no nothing. You're just dropping the money and go. It became nothing to them. David here says, I get it. You don't want more dead animals. You want my heart. Let's build on this. Can you go with me to Deuteronomy 6? Let's show this idea because this is so vitally important. God wants your heart. You could spend your whole life doing things right. You could spend time in the Word, spend time in prayer. You could go to church, you could serve, you could evangelize, you could minister, you could worship. But if your heart's not there, what does it mean? Nothing. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. See, that's the goal from the beginning. God says, I want your heart. He's not talking about blood and animals and sacrifices there. He says, love me with all your heart, soul, and strength. And these words, let them be in your heart. Build on this now. Let's go to Mark 12. Mark 12. One of the scribes comes up speaking to Jesus. In Jesus' last week on this earth. Verse 28, Mark 12. Then one of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, what is the first commandment of all? What's the greatest commandment? According to the Jews, there were 613 rules and regulations in the Old Testament law. If you read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, 613. What's the most important one? 29. Jesus answered him. The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second like it is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. He took all 613. He took Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Summed it up by saying, love God, love others. That has been the goal. Is the heart. The animal sacrifices were a symbol of our sin. It was a reminder of our sin. It was a visual of our sin. It was an important part of the system. But the whole goal was always the heart. You would never get right with God by killing an animal. You'd get right with God by your heart being right with Him. Same thing applies today. If you think you're going to get right with God by doing something, I'm going to read more, pray more, study more, baptize more, come to church more, God owes me, you're you're completely misunderstanding it. It's the heart that the Lord wants. And when the heart is there and it's right, you will then want to... Go to church, read more, pray more, evangelize, because the heart has been made right with the Lord. So now back here to Psalm 40. So they did not offer, excuse me, they did not desire these sacrifices. God wants obedience. Think back to with Saul and Samuel. Saul was given the command to go destroy the Amalekites. So Saul goes into battle, a great victory, but he keeps a lot of the sheep back and some of the people back. Samuel shows up and says, Saul, what are you doing? You're supposed to destroy everything. Saul says, I kept the best for the Lord to sacrifice to him. Which is a bit of a lie. Samuel then says this, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. God says, I want obedience more than sacrifice. He wants your heart. So that's what we see in verse 6. Then it says in the middle of 6, My ears you have opened. 
Now, there's a couple ways to look at this. This could just mean that David got it. My ears have opened. I get it now. Isaiah 50 kind of talks about this a little bit. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. Think about how many times in the New Testament Jesus said, give us ears to hear. It's like my ears you have opened. I, I now get it. I mean, I've heard this, but now it makes sense to me. Or it could carry the idea of, of the uh, bond servant. If you remember correctly from the Old Testament, this idea that what you could do in Deuteronomy 21 and uh, 15 is this idea that you could, if you were a servant and you were getting ready to be set free and you loved your master so much, you could go up to the doorpost of the house and they would put an awl through your ear and you would get your ear pierced to show, visually symbolize that you wanted to, out of your own choice, free will, be a servant to this master. You weren't forced to. So when you were walking through with your master and they would look at you and say, oh, it's just another slave. No, 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 no. He's got his ear pierced. He is willingly choosing to be with this master. This master must be so loving, so wonderful, so amazing. He says, I want to serve them. That's what it means to be a bondservant. So it could be that it means David says, my ears you have opened, saying, I have given myself over to you as a servant. It does say plural ears. I guess you could make the case that's a double devotion. You'll pierce both ears. I don't know. But it's this idea of I'm getting it now. I'm starting to see it. Then seven, I said, behold, I come to scroll the book that is written in me. Let's talk about Jesus first, and then we'll talk about David. I love this verse seven in re- response to Christ. That's what we read in Hebrews 10. The scroll of the book is written in me. That changes the way you read the Old Testament. So when I go back and I read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and I say, what is the purpose and point of all these rules and laws? They're a picture of Jesus. When I go back and read about the sacrifices, it's a picture of Jesus. When I go in Genesis and, and I see Adam and Eve who were naked and then they, they had animal, sac- excuse me, animal sacrifice for them, the clothes put on them, it's a picture of their shame being covered up, but yet it couldn't take care of it. So that's why in Genesis 3 it says that the woman's seed will crush the head of Satan. That's Jesus. When I see Isaac being sacrificed by Abraham and Abraham says that God himself will provide the ram, that's a picture of Jesus. I mean, there's just Jesus is all over because the whole book is written of him. That's what makes the Old Testament come alive. Is to go back and see, actually the law is a picture of Christ. The tabernacle, the temple, it's a picture of Christ. It's beautiful. The whole book is written about him. But what about David? How is the book written about him? Go with me to Deuteronomy 17 real quick. Deuteronomy 17. In Deuteronomy 17, God lays down the rules and regulations for a king. So some of this is practical. The book is written about me. David is saying there's things in this book that deal with me as a king. Take a look at 18. It shall be when he, meaning the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write for himself a copy of the law and a book from the one before the priest, the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, and be careful to observe all the words of this law and the statutes, that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, that he may prolong his days in this kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. David says, the book is right about me. There's things in here that I'm supposed to do. I love this. Did you catch this in 18? So when you are king in Israel, you're anointed king and you sit on the throne, you're supposed to go write for yourself your own copy of the law before the priests, the Levites, to make sure you got it. Now, what are they writing at this point? Probably Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges maybe. Um, David maybe had Book of Job. 
maybe the book of Ruth, a couple Psalms. That's all he had. But he would write out his own copy of it. This is something that uh, Rene Amador told me about years ago. It's called the Deuteronomy 1718 series, and I'm not plugging the company. I don't have stock in it or anything, but it's something I do utilize. Dawn has gotten me some of them before, too. It is the book. And what it is, it's you pick a book. I have like John at home, Proverbs, and I'm working through Psalm 119 now. And it has the verses there, but just the number. And you go out and write out it by hand. You're like rewriting the book of John. You rewrite the book of Proverbs. I'm rewriting Psalm 119. Because it comes from this idea that you're supposed to take a copy of it yourself. Now, this is beautiful for me. I am not an auditory learner. I am a visual learner. I need to read it and write it to get it. So it's beautiful for me. If that's the way your mind works, I encourage you to look into that, that Deuteronomy 17, 18 series. Pick a book of the Bible. And yeah, start rewriting it out by hand. That's what the kings were supposed to do. Because as you're doing it, you're reading it, writing it, and then reading it again. You're supposed to be then, as it says in 19, careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes, that your heart may not be lifted up. David says, the book is written about me. And then it takes us to 8. I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. There's that word again, heart. I delight to do your word. Do we have that desire? I mean, the book of James says, don't be somebody who just hears the word. Be somebody who does the word. John 13, Jesus said this, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Revelation 22 says, blessed are those who do his commandments. There's a blessing in obedience. I just want to tell you guys right now, straight up in love, if there's something the Lord has asked you to do and you know what's on your heart, you're blessed if you do it. Be obedient to it. Look at 8. I delight to do your will, O oh my God, and your laws within my heart. If you know what the Lord has laid on your heart to do, and it lines up with the scriptures, and it lines up with his nature led by the Spirit, just do it. Delight in it. Be blessed. Even though it's difficult, it's hard. There's a blessing in being obedient to God. Verses 1 through 5 are our praise. 6 through 8 is a realization. Once he realizes it, what's he do now? He proclaims it. 9, I have proclaimed the good news of righteousness in the great assembly. Indeed, I do not restrain my lips, O Lord, you yourself know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have declared your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great assembly. Proclaim it. We struggle with this as Christians. I used to teach messages on how to almost like force it. I realize now you can't force proclaiming what God has done for you. You just want to do it. If that's not your heart, pray for it and realize the importance of it. Pray for it and realize the importance of it. Look at this. Verse 9, I'm proclaiming it in the great assembly. I do not restrain my lips. 10, I'm not hiding your righteousness. I'm declaring it. I'm not concealing it. I mean, think about things we like to talk about. We talk about what we feel is important to us. Think about all things we talk about. Oh, man, is there going to be football this fall? That's important to us. Did you hear what the president said? That's important to us. The weather, that's important to us. Did you see that movie? Did you hear that song? That's important to us. What about the Lord? I mean, we'll proclaim so much. We'll talk about so much, but what about the Lord? Now, this idea of proclaiming the good news of righteousness in the great assembly, the idea of verse 10 of not hiding it, declaring it, I don't know if this necessarily means hardcore evangelism all the time where people are hitting their knees accepting Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I think sometimes it's just proclaiming the goodness of God. I just think back over the last week, the conversations I had with people. I think back to us at the boys, we were taking the orthodontist, and 
I, you know, I had a blue shirt on, and I had this ring on, and I had my, my mask on that's blue. And so the lady asked me, did you try to color coordinate? Of course, that never crossed my mind. The rings that Dawn and I wear now are the $3 Walmart uh, ones. We'll be married 24 years tomorrow. We've reached the point where we just plastic shows how much we love each other. It's a lot easier. It's a lot simple. So I can change colors when I need to and I lose it. And I thought, no. I said, I just, and I, and I stopped and I said, you know what? My wife and I will be married coming up to 24 years. And I just did a real quick thing. I almost like did the marriage thing. I said, we kind of look at the ring as a symbol of the covenant of commitment we made to each other and God, sealed by Christ. We think it's important. Like, I'm just proclaiming God's goodness. I go to Walmart. And I always look at the cashiers, and I'm always kind of praying, which one, Lord? Because I only got about 30 seconds with them. So I saw this one cashier, and she was, as the Bible would say, heavy with child. I well, that's a great opener right there. I mean, you can't dodge that, right? So you go, I went in, and I said, oh, you're expecting. Now, there always is that brief moment of, I hope she is. But it was pretty obvious that she was. I mean, like, it, was, it was pretty obvious that she was. She goes, yeah. And I said, oh, how many is this going to be her fifth? And I said, oh, children are a blessing from the Lord. I'm going to pray for you to save I mean, just proclaim the Lord. I mean, it wasn't one of those things, oh, I see you're pregnant. Oh, yeah, it's my fifth. Oh, have you accepted Jesus? If not, you're going to hell. No, I didn't say that. But proclaim God's goodness, and I'm going to pray for you and just let the Lord open the door. So I just want you to realize 9 and 10. When you realize what the Lord has done for you, you can't conceal it. You can't hide it. You just talk about how good God is. Because he has just done so much. And this is what David is realizing. Which then takes us to the last part. And we're going to go through this part pretty quick. This is the actual prayer part. Praised, realized, proclaim, and now prayer. And I'm going to break down the prayer for you here so you can follow along with me. Verse 11, he asks for blessings. Verse 12, he gives the Lord his problems. Verse 13, he cries out for help. Verses 14 and 15, he gives the problems over to the Lord. And verses 16 and 17 is a declaration of faith. Verse 11. He asks for blessings. Do not withhold your tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let your loving kindness and your truth continually preserve me. Blessings. Lord, let me walk in your mercy. Let me walk in your loving kindness. Some of your translations, unfailing love, steadfast love, mercy. Let me walk in your truth. Lord, bless me with mercy, love, and truth. What a great prayer. Twelve, I'm going to give you my problems, Lord. For innumerable evils have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me, so I'm not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of my head, therefore my heart fails me. Look at the wording in 12. I have problems. I have evil. I have iniquity. And I have a failing heart. I have evil. I have things happening in my life I did not ask for. It's just evil. I'm in a pit. I have iniquity. I jumped in the pit of sin. Lord, help me to get out. Verse 12, my heart fails me. I've given up. I'm I'm right at the edge of the pit and my heart's failing me. I might as well just jump in the pit because I don't care anymore. Lord, I'm giving you these problems. Help me. Please note, they're more than the hairs of my head. I find that interesting because in the Gospels, Jesus said that God knows the hairs on our head. He knows everything about us. Then, verse 13, a cry for help. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. God is pleased to help you. As a parent, I love it when my girls come up and ask me to do something and I get to be the hero in their eyes for like 30 seconds. I love it when my boys who are older come and say, Dad, can I talk to you about this? I love to be pleased to help them, to hopefully point them back to the Lord. God wants to help you. He's pleased to do it. Verse 14 and 15, give them everything. Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who seek to destroy my life. Let them be driven backward and brought to dishonor who wish me evil. Let them be confounded because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. Don't carry the burdens, the people, the problems. Give it to the Lord. Let Him take care of it. 
And then look at this declaration of faith to end on 16. Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let us, let such as love your salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. We've talked about this before, magnified, the John Piper point. Magnified or minimized. A telescope magnifies something that's already big and makes you realize the size of it. When I go look at Saturn or Jupiter through my telescope and I see the rings and I see the moons, all of a sudden that tiny dot of a, of a just brightness in the sky, I see now moons around it. It has been magnified. You must choose to magnify the Lord in your life. He's big. Realize how big he is. How many of us magnify our problems and minimize the Lord? Choose to magnify the Lord and minimize your problems. 17. But I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinks upon me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Lord, I am poor. I need help. I am needy. Deliver me. 1 through 5, praise. 6 through 8, the realization of who God is. 9 through 10, I proclaim that. 11 on, I pray. Life is hard, full of trials, tribulations. They're real, they're difficult. There's a pit that I'm either being thrown in, stumbling in, jumping in, falling in. Lord, bring me out of this pit through you. Can you go with me to Psalm 70? Some of you may be thinking, he's only got four minutes left. Psalm 70, verse 1. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. Make haste to help me, O Lord. Let them be ashamed and confounded who seek my life. Let them be turned back and confused who desire my hurt. Let them be turned back because of their shame who say, Aha, aha. Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation say continually, Let God be magnified. But I am poor and needy. Make haste to help me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer, O Lord. Do not delay. Do you realize it's almost word for word the same as that last part of Psalm 40. Look at the little differences, though. If you still got your hand in Psalm 40, please note in verse 13 of Psalm 40, he says, Once, O Lord, make haste to help me. But yet here in verse 1 of Psalm 70, he says twice, Make haste, O God, to deliver me. Make haste to help me, O Lord. What is Psalm 70? Psalm 70 is the chorus of that song that touches you. You don't remember all the verses. You remember that chorus that you sing in your head to get you through. Psalm 70 is that beautiful passage of Scripture, but yet that one verse jumps out at you. Psalm 70 is the Reader's Digest condensed version of Psalm 40, where God says, yeah, I asked you to wait patiently for me, but I realize human nature, you kind of just want the highlight. So the highlight is this, Lord, here's the prayer. I'm praying it. Because look at the introduction of Psalm 70. To the chief musician of Psalm of David, to bring to remembrance... So Psalm 70 is what God says. This is what I want you to remember of the whole thing. The whole Psalm 40 is good. It's all good. It's a wonderful psalm. But so often and when we're at the pit, we're not thinking of praise and realization and proclamation. We're thinking of, Lord, help me. So Psalm 70, God gave us to us to say, here it is in a nutshell. Lord, make haste, make haste, hurry up and help me, Lord. Because I'm at the bottom of the pit and I'm struggling. Some of you, that's where you're at right now. I just encourage you to realize, let the Lord pull you out of the pit, set you on the rock, but then, just as important, let Him put a new song in your mouth. Many will see it and hear it and fear the Lord as you proclaim God's goodness. And if God pulls you out of the pit, don't jump back in. Don't go flirt with disaster. Don't go look in it again. Stay away from it. That miry clay wants to suck you in. And the Lord says, I want to pull you out. What a wonderful blessing that is.
In way of announcements here, just to close up before we pray. Uh, start a new book on Wednesday, 2 Thessalonians. Pick 2 Thessalonians. It's a pretty simple, straightforward book, but it carries a lot of end times mindset. I've had a lot of people ask me about end times with everything going on with the virus here. I thought it was a good book to get into to kind of get in a little bit of end times. Uh, please do note, with Henry County still being under a, I think, red level three, um, VBS may be different again this week as well. Tony will let you know. Keep your ears posted for that concerning everything. I just want to say real quick, too, you know, for those that are here, I know it is awkward and weird and difficult to come into church and you got these masks on. And everybody now and then will say to me, so you're, you're telling me I have to wear it? I say, no, Governor DeWine is telling you you have to wear it. I'm trying to be blameless. And what we're trying to do as a church in this season is we're trying to be blameless. We're not going to let any of these rules or regulations affect the ministry of what we do. We're going to keep an eternal focus. And I want to remind everybody it's the eternity gospel. Don't let the frustrations of rules and regulations keep you from the focus of eternity. I've seen so many Christians here so frustrated with what's going on. They lose the eternal focus and their energy is put into whining and complaining. It's about eternity, folks. And I just want to tell you, for those that are here this morning, I appreciate that greatly. I know it's awkward. I know it's difficult. I have my own frustrations too, but I just give them to the Lord and say, Lord, focus through that. And for those that are watching at home, I appreciate you taking the time to still tune in. I know it's different at home as well, too. This is a strange season, but let's keep an eternal mindset and focus on whatever we're saying and whatever we're doing for the Lord. Would you guys stand with me as we pray? Lord, for those that are in a, here this morning that are in a pit, those that are watching at home that are in a pit, I ask that you pull them out, set their feet on the rock, put a new song in their mouth, Let us realize it, then let us proclaim it. For those, Lord, that like to go back near the pit, I pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, you're keeping them away, convicting them, warning them, admonishing them. There's nothing good at that pit. For those that are at the bottom of the pit that's just looking around at this miry slop and slime and clay, saying, what hope do I have, Lord? You are the God of hope as you pull them out. Make haste, Lord, and let us proclaim your goodness in all ways and all things. You are a good God, and we thank you in your name. Amen. You guys have a good week. God bless. Thank you for coming out and joining us online. We'll see you guys next week.